I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. In the beginning, the end. It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. So where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids, and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all, when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. Sky Nelson Isaacs is a physics educator musician, and author of Living in Flow, The Science and Synchronicity of How Your Choices Shape Your World. Since Living in Flow came out last spring, he has created a video series to go with it. Sky, welcome back to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thanks so much, Tony. It's great to be here and connect with you again. I really appreciate it. Yeah, this is a fascinating project of yours to make flow and synchronicity a scientific endeavor. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really valuable to have a scientific understanding of the things that we're talking about. And there's also a human aspect to science and how it influences our worldview. You know, we live in a time when we take for granted, in a sense, we always take for granted our worldview, right? Because we're immersed in it. Right. But we, we went for a long time, we were immersed in classical mechanics, where everything is sort of like clockwork. And then in the early 1900s, our mathematics changed and our physics changed to incorporate more of an approach where the universe is information. The universe is, in some sense, related to our observations of it. And I wouldn't say that our experience of daily life and our worldview has really caught up. In a lot of ways, people are still operating from this mechanistic worldview, and that's how our economy works. Its economy is like a zero-sum game where one person has to lose in order for another person to win. But what it tells us is that the work that cosmologists and physicists do in science to understand what is the appropriate worldview really does have an impact on the types of choices we make on a day-to-day basis as human beings. And my current work 
is really new in certain ways. Well, it certainly it changes, right? Because peer review and, and dialogue that happens in the scientific community makes it so we, we're never really sure how if it's if theories are going to stay as they are or they're going to evolve. So I, I want to put some separation between the academic work that I do and the experience that I have of why it's important in the world. So with that being said, the work I'm doing right now in science really looks at space and time, and I've sort of roundabout come to the description of the world in holographic terms. And what I mean by that, because that's sort of an abstract word, a hologram is a piece of film that is flat, but it looks like it has a three-dimensional image in it. So it's encapsulating the appearance of something real in just an informational interference pattern on the film. And in a similar way, what I think we find is that the math of quantum physics and quantum field theory is actually an expression of the same equations of holography, indicating that in a really real sense, the physical world is in some sense like a simulated environment or an environment that appears very real and is very real for our observations, but in some sense is not persisting when we're not observing it. When we turn our backs or when we think about the world out there that's happening with all the news on the radio, like that is only something that actually has tangibility when we're perceiving it and interacting with it. And so there's a very real sense in which that seems to be true from the, the mathematics. And that has implications, especially for choice and how synchronicity shows up in our life. That's really utterly fascinating. So yeah. in addition to the notion of there being an objective reality that may or may not exist when we're not perceiving it, that interactive engagement between ourselves and the world that we're perceiving around us and how the whole relationship, the whole, well, you could call it the whole evolving, expanding universe is continually evolving in relation to that interaction, yeah. that ongoing conversation that we are having, that each one of us is having. Yes, exactly. And that's something that I find to be utterly fascinating. It's how the universe responds to us and how we can harness the way the universe works in relation to us to make all of this work in ways that we can approach intentionally. Yes. So let's talk about choice. Choice is what really is at the core of everyday living. We're here making choices. That's how our life evolves. So if we're going to really affect our worldview, we're going to have to think about how we make choices and what the impact of those choices are. Well, the impact of living in this sort of virtual-like environment that I think we do based on the equations of holograms and how they relate to quantum mechanics, it's kind of like living in the matrix, which is essentially an environment that is adjustable based on the choices we make. So because the world out there, this what I'm calling a simulated world, even though it's very real, is not physically persistent when we're not observing it, it is available to adjust in its histories. So we're not actually interacting with a solid, predetermined set of circumstances. We're interacting with a set of possibilities. And this is the proposal, and this is very controversial, of course. But we're interacting with a set of possibilities which are actually adjusting and flexible based on the choices we make. So to take it one step further and just give you a little bit more of how this exactly works, in this holographic formulation of things, there is no actual present moment. We're dealing with abstraction of time. We understand space and time are relative and special relativity, and there's a lot of different complex and subtle ways to look at this. But ultimately, there is no real conception of the real present moment. 
what there is is a, is a relative present moment. So you and I are having this relative present moment right now where we're experiencing this set of circumstances. But what actually is the more fundamental structure in physics, I think, is trajectories or paths or timelines. So when we make a choice in the moment, we're not just choosing to solve a problem right now, right? We sort of have this worldview that we're going to solve a problem today and we're not even really thinking about tomorrow. We're going to solve tomorrow's problems tomorrow. But what this actually indicates is that the decisions we're making now are, are actually selecting whole timelines. When we decide to you know, ban single-use plastics in the city, for instance, which we have in, here in San Francisco, we are not just making a decision which has immediate impacts you know, in 2020. We're also selecting out or identifying future experiences that we're wanting to have or setting in motion. I call them maybe a target. And that's an experience of being a little bit more able to deal with climate change, having a little bit of progress rather than you know, being really more and more frustrated over time. So we're setting ourselves on a trajectory which has that outcome. So by making choices in the moment, we're actually setting ourselves on trajectories which have specific types of outcomes. It doesn't mean we're actually going to get there, and it's not that there's one trajectory that we're selecting, but we're filtering out of the many possibilities, or maybe in the multiverse, we're filtering out from all these possible universes the ones that are consistent with the choice that we're making right now and finding ourselves on a timeline. And so it's important to think of ourselves as on this timeline rather than just stuck in the present. We're actually going somewhere, and that somewhere is sort of, in some sense, pre-calculated or pre-existing in, in an abstract sense. And I think that's really useful as a human to think about, and maybe this is just a metaphor, but to think about the future that I'm imagining, the future that I want, the future in which we've somehow addressed, for instance, climate change, or the future in which I've, for instance, addressed my own financial insecurity or relationship insecurity. These futures are like existing on these film strips that we're choosing, but they're in the future, so we're not there yet. But in some sense, they are future possibilities that are pre-calculated and available to us. And I think that's a really different worldview from just thinking that we're in the present moment, making decisions to solve a problem right now, and the chance of getting into some desired outcome in the future is just sort of throw of the dice. I love the way you just presented that whole thing because in some ways we're obsessed with the present moment, both in positive and negative ways, and also we are obsessed with thinking about the future the different possibilities that could either befall us or that we could engage in. And some of the time we feel like victims of the unfolding world around us, and other times we feel or we have the illusion that we're in control of things. And I've noticed in observing myself when I get caught in, in like depressive moments or despairing moments, that's based on this fear that what I'm experiencing right now will never change. Right. And so the present moment, the relative present moment that you're talking about, is like the access point from which we yes. engage with everything. And it sounds to me, the way you're presenting it, it's like the alchemist stone is the realization that this present moment is a continual trajectory. It's not a static moment. Right. Right, and to think of it, like if I'm stuck in a place of depression or stagnation or frustration, I don't have to create through just intense effort a future that's different than that because that feels impossible to overcome those odds. That set of possibilities is there. In some sense, I just need to get to it. And this is where choice comes in. I just need to find my way to that particular film strip. And it does involve effort and it does involve self-analysis and understanding. 
It's about making choices that align with that particular set of experiences we want to have in the future. But it's much less daunting, I think, in that perspective when you see those film strips sort of already there and you're just trying to find your way to them. And another way of approaching that could be just relaxing and remembering that the trajectory is happening regardless of whether we remember or realize that or not. Yeah. And for me, and I think all of us experience this, that when we run up against an obstacle that we see no way through or around, often at a certain point, we will just give up or we'll surrender in a sense. And sometimes we do it deliberately, but often we do it just out of either frustration or exhaustion or just resignation. And yet once we do relax or let go of the struggle, that allows for the trajectory to move in a way that's outside of our very limited ability to make things happen or to control things? Yeah, yeah. I have a great story that will tie into that. And to set up that story, I want to add one more piece of information about synchronicity, how synchronicity actually plays into this picture. So maybe just kind of a nice worldview to think about when I make a choice, I'm putting myself on a trajectory with a certain target in the future, a target experience, not a target circumstance, like not I'm going to make a million dollars, but an experience like I'm going to feel or experience this set of things in my life. But how does that really influence the physical world? And this is where physics comes in, I think. This theory that I have called meaningful history selection comes in. Meaningful history selection talks about the flexibility of the world to fall into place according to a meaningful prescription or some kind of meaningful way for you, the person observing things. So think of it this way. When you take an action as a choice in the moment and you set some target experience that you want to have, even if it's not conscious, you're doing that. And that's like placing an apple on the tree of all those film strips that are branching out ahead of you. So all these branches represent the different circumstances that could unfold through your life. And the ones that have the experience that you're targeting, they grow apples. And those apples are a metaphor for weighing down those particular branches and making them more likely. And so anything that leads to those branches, leads to those circumstances, will also become more likely. And these are the synchronicities. So what I'm saying is once you make a choice and set the target and through intention, planning, and action set off in that direction, then the key aspect that you were just talking about is letting nature fill in the path because you will, I propose, experience meaningful coincidences, which are the useful steps to get to where you're trying to go to. And they become more likely because of where they lead, because of the apple that they lead to. So I have a story that illustrates that, you know, one particular example of synchronicity that someone shared with me. And this really involves letting go that you were just talking about. So this person, she and her husband were wanting to have a baby and they weren't able to. So they started fertility treatment and wasn't responding very well. You know, the experience was difficult for her and in some sense traumatizing. Then she suddenly got transferred by her employer for a reason that she couldn't quite figure out. There was like an office near her, but they decided to transfer her about an hour and a half away. And so she had this really long commute all of a sudden, and she never figured out why they did that. It was sort of this random event, which maybe we can look and say, is this a synchronicity? What is this trying to teach me? What is this trying to help me through? It's an obstacle because it created an obstacle for her actually pursuing the fertility treatments. When she got home at night after work, it was too late to really engage in the necessary activities of trying to conceive. And so this obstacle came in, and we can think of the obstacles in our life as synchronicities. 
but we don't necessarily know how they're helping us in the moment. So she worked in this situation for about three years, and she went through various stages of grief and maybe some healing, too, in that process of letting go and relaxing and surrendering to the experience, and they thought about adopting. And then the situation ended, and they brought her back close to home, and and her work situation made it much easier, and they thought about pursuing fertility treatments again, and then they got pregnant naturally, and it was totally a surprise. But there is an element of being able to see the obstacle that comes up and this woman addressed the underlying feelings that she had in the process, the grief. And it makes me think about, you know, the goal might be to get pregnant, but the underlying goal is to, to heal. And so in the process of being willing to do that healing, then she came around and was able to have the physical experience she wanted as well through a much longer process that involved obstacles that turned out to be redirections or synchronicities of some sort. What that makes me think of is how in order to get a good answer, we have to formulate a good question, or rather, the quality of the answer we get correlates directly to the quality of the question that we are able to ask of it. Yes, I think that's true. I think that's the essence of the choice that we're making at every moment. Every choice we make is like a question we're asking. Mm-hmm. We think of choices as statements, right? I'm making a choice which is a definitive direction. But it's also, in a sense, an opening up, like, I'm going to try this. I'm going to open to this possibility. And if we think of the question as our action, and then the answer to that question as the response from our lives, from what I would call nature, what my understanding of synchronicity is, is it's a response. A synchronistic experience is is a response to the questions or choices or actions that we're posing. And by making courageous choices or choices that are consciously thought through, whose motivations we understand, we then get answers or synchronicities from our life, which lead us towards those conscious goals that we might have. And it's, of course, certainly possible to be unaware of the motivation for our choices, which I think is true for me a lot of the time. That's really the way we operate a lot. We're unaware of what's guiding our choices. And so we end up experiencing synchronicities which are leading us in sort of dubious directions, because we didn't really understand that by interjecting ourselves in this conversation. We were trying to help somebody else in their life, but it ended up backfiring and we ended up having a very different synchronistic experience than we expected because we are actually not clear on our motivations. Yes, and you talk about encountering resistance to things that we are trying to achieve. I think when we're dealing with these type of issues, we're dealing with the issues of conscious intention and what's going on in our unconscious or subconscious. How do those elements fit into this, and how can we learn to work with those more effectively? One of the benefits that comes from the work that I do with my organization, the Synchronicity Institute, is taught in the course that I have put together called the Living in Flow course, is ending repeating stubborn patterns of experience. It has to do with the ways in which we are un- aware of how we keep perpetuating the same circumstances, the same experiences in our lives. The way I think about synchronicity playing into that is that we're on a cycle, and I call it the healing aspect of synchronicity or how synchronicity can contribute to our healing process. So I think of us in the human experience as trying to peel back the layers of conditioning that we have. We are whole human beings 
at birth. And over time, we gradually sort of make decisions about who we are based on our life circumstances. And we create layers that filter out, you know, some of the possibilities and we become certain personalities that are very specific. What I think synchronicity helps us do is helps us see our blind spots. It helps us see the authentic selves who we have rejected or pushed away or filtered out so that we begin to understand ourselves as whole human beings again. And one of the ways in which it does this or can do this is through a cycle of reinforcing our pattern. So let's say I have a pattern with a family member where I keep feeling every time we get together, I feel like they don't contribute to the work that we need to do together. Or maybe it's at work. You know, I'm working with a colleague who doesn't contribute to the work we need to do together. And it seems to happen every time. And in a particular situation, it might look like, you know, we have a report to write together and I come prepared to the meeting with a lot of research I've done and they haven't done any planning. And so I feel like I'm carrying that load. And it triggers something in me which might come from a long time ago. You know, I get upset because when I was a kid, this kind of same dynamic was happening where I took on a lot of responsibility and the people around me didn't help. So in this moment with my colleague or my family member in the present, I might react negatively or be critical or passive aggressive in my comments. And what that does is it triggers something in them as well. And so the dynamic gets set up. And we're all familiar with the ways that we can like make dynamics get more and more difficult. And we start reacting to each other based on our conditioning of how we grew up and how we were wounded as littler people. So now we're in this cycle of escalation. But there's a key element here that's really useful, which is that none of us really want to be in that cycle of escalation. If we can identify what is causing it for us, we can actually realize that we want to be in the cycle of synergy and collaboration as long as we get our basic needs met. And so ultimately what we're yearning for is to get out of the cycle and that's going to be the target that we set, right? It's going to be the thing, the end of the timeline that we're actually trying to choose. We're trying to choose a timeline that leads us to resolution and to harmony. And so that's going to bring about more likely than not synchronicities which will help us get there. Now the key point here is that a synchronicity that helps us get to harmony is not necessarily the other person changing or the other person seeing things our way. Like, that's what we want to happen, but that's not how it actually works in the human experience because there's layers of, you know, our own reaction and their own reaction in the way. So what the synchronicity will do is it will recreate the same experience, the one that made you upset. And once again, because you've got the same psychology and this person has the same psychology, they'll do something else which triggers the reaction. Why are you not helping me? Why am I carrying all the weight? And so our job as people who are trying to grow to our next level of greatness, of excellence, is to, when we get into that cycle of reactivity, to learn from it and recognize our own inner dialogue. Like, what is it that I'm reacting to and how am I making the situation worse? Because we should expect it to come again and again and again. And each time it comes, we have a new opportunity to choose a different response. And we've learned from the previous experiences what's really going on inside of ourselves. We see that our emotional state is reacting to something that maybe our parents did to us when we were younger or our peers did to us when we were younger. And we see that it no longer applies. And once we see that, we can begin to respond differently to our colleague or our family member in the moment. And so we jump off of the cycle by making a choice which targets a different timeline, a different outcome. You know, you can think of it sort of spiritually or you can think of it abstractly, but really what it is is about the skill to recognize what the consequences of your choices are and take whatever happens as an opportunity to learn about that and redirect and grow, make different choices. One of the things that you mentioned was recognizing old patterns. Now, many people don't actually recognize or don't have that kind of insight 
aren't seeing a therapist who can help them see the patterns that they're enacting or where those patterns right. are rising out of. So when we don't have that perspective, what other things can help us to recognize that we actually have a whole different trajectory of choice that we can make? Well, I think the most important impact of the worldview that comes from the work that I'm doing is recognition that everything in our lives, you know, the entire trajectory of our life, the entire set of circumstances of our life is serving the purpose of helping us heal and grow and change and get to a next highest level of capacity. If we see everything that happens in that light, really without exception, and if it doesn't trigger you, great, it's not important. But if it triggers you, it's about your path of growth, your path of up-leveling yourself. So when we take that perspective and say, look, I live in this holographic paradigm in which the world is presenting to me certain situations to challenge my understanding of myself, then I'm going to interpret it that way. And I'm going to say, what is it about the situation that is affecting me? And so you don't have to know or have experience being you know, self-analyzing yourself or understanding your patterns. You don't have to know your patterns. Life will show them to you. What's important is to be able to have the humility to recognize and not blame other people for your problems, but to see the ways in which your problems are showing up again and again for you. And situations, again, will happen, which bring that to the forefront over and over and over again. So you will be faced with plenty of opportunities to see that. And I talked about in our last interview last year, the Lorax process, which is just one way to sort of trigger an awareness that can help you see these patterns. The Lorax, L-O-R-R-A-X, listen to the situation, open your mind to what it could mean, rather than assuming, well, this problem I'm facing is because someone else did something wrong. Well, the opening might be, well, maybe there's something I did that was actually not helpful too. And then the first R is reflecting. So you're actually looking at the situation from a broader perspective and saying, well, how does this actually, this thing that seems really frustrating and, and terrible, like the person's not helping me with this project and it's all on me, how can I reflect on that and see ways in which it can help me or which I can learn how to stand up for what I need more and grow and evolve and up-level my skills? And once we've reflected, then we also might have to release our attachments to, you know, well, I wanted this person to know how to help me in the first place without me having to say it, but I can release that and I can actually enter into relationship by taking an action which invites us to talk at a more intimate level and share more deeply and come into collaboration. And then I might be able to, through that process of listening, opening, reflecting, releasing, acting, and then continuing to repeat that process, to not giving up, that's the X, of course. <laughs> then I might be able to have a deeper and richer experience of that relationship. But before, it was just a frustration point for me. Yeah. It's so important to clarify what it is that we really want and also to be able to let go of how that can happen because we, mm -hmm. we, we have this, this obsessive tendency to try and control everything and to collapse things down into <laughs> these very narrow range of possibilities like this is what I want, and this is the way it has to happen, or this is the only way I see it being able to happen. And we're not even aware that we're limiting how it can happen when in this continually expanding, virtually infinite universe, there are almost an infinite number of ways that things can happen, including the things that we are wanting to happen. Right, right. And when we see this tree of possibilities ahead of us, or we think of it as film strips, you know, a multiplicity of film strips that we're selecting between, the person that seems to be an obstacle for us, 
that one person that just doesn't ever do things the way we want them to, or they, they say no to ideas that we have that we think are good. You know, we all feel like there's somebody who stands in our way at different times in our life, but those people become just part of the landscape rather than blaming them or taking personally those obstacles. We see them as just yet another obstacle that the cosmos is putting in front of us. And it shifts our, at least for me, relationship from trying to get things from people, trying to get a certain outcome from situations external to me, from the people I'm working with and trying to get them to do things my way and manipulating the situation in my favor. It shifts from that to, like, my argument is with the process of synchronicity. <laughs> when, like, when is this process going to bring me the situation I need? Not with the person who's not giving me what I want. Like, they're just part of this process. I'm talking with Sky Nelson Isaacs. He's a physics educator, musician, and the author of Living in Flow, The Science of Synchronicity and How Your Choices Shape Your World. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. And so on this tree, there's lots of apples on the branches of the tree. And so if I'm on one branch and I come up against someone who says, no, you can't you know, submit your documents here, or you've missed the deadline, or I won't let you go to the dance, you know, or if it's your parents and you're a kid or something like that. So that one particular branch is just one. And if we focus on it, then we lose track of all the other branches that get to apples. So synchronicity is a way of noticing that histories are flexible to us and our choices, and that we can be flexible to align with the choices available to us. So it sounds to me like synchronicity relates directly to the holistic nature of the world and the universe. And we started off by talking about conditioning and filters and the conditioning and filters that we accumulate, those layers, those are things that separate us from the direct experience of our relationship with this holistic universe that we are actually an integral part of, and all that conditioning and those filters and layers of filters give us a sense of separation from that, make us feel isolated from that and out of sync with the world or out of a sense of synchronicity with the world around mm -hmm. us. Right, right. Yeah, I, I had an experience when I worked at a technology company where for a number of years, you know, I was working in quality assurance for a time. And for a number of years, my manager gave me the same feedback, which was people in the meetings on the other teams that you're meeting with who are have a stake in the project you're working on, like they appreciate the insights you're bringing, but they feel like you're creating barriers and you're taking a contrarian perspective, you know, saying that this is just not going to work. And I kept getting that feedback and wondering, well, that's my job, right? I'm, I'm trying to sort of vouch for what we can accomplish in the best possible way and how the project's going to be successful. But there was a way in which he was reflecting to me something that I was doing, which was having an impact that I didn't realize. And by paying attention to that, that gradually I started to understand it a little better and started to see that I could have different choices of the wording that I used and how I approached it in my mind, how I came at the conversation, even if I wanted to achieve the same goal of protecting the quality and making sure we delivered on our obligations, I could do that in a way which was more skillful. And then at one point, we went through this shift in the team, and I ended up being a leader of the team in a new way. And I noticed, you know, I felt like we needed something to bring us together. There was a sense of disconnection and, and frustration and, you know, the potential for us sort of dividing apart in a way and not being cohesive. And at that exact time, in that exact week, one of the people in a different department came to me and said, 
hey, I just got this invitation. It's really out of the blue and very unusual for us, but we have this new client who's a really big potential client that we want to get on board, and they want to do a special project, and it's going to be really unique and different from what we usually do. But I wonder, and you don't have to say yes, but I wonder if you want to. I'm just going to sort of put it to you, and we can talk about it. And my initial feeling, based on that whole history that I was just talked about, is like, no way. Like, we can't do that. I want to make sure we're successful, and that's not the way we do things. And I felt like it was my job to do that. And yet, because I had, over time, grown to be a little more flexible and understand my own internal feelings that came up in that moment, you know, feelings like, well, I will be seen as not doing my job if I don't take control of the situation more. Or I'm afraid that we will end up in a situation that creates unpleasantness for everybody. And, you know, the the different things that go on personally inside of me that make it hard for me to be open. And in this particular moment, I was able to have a little more openness and look at the situation and meet with my team. And we realized there was a pathway to make this happen. And in the end, like we set ourselves on a trajectory and I couldn't see it in the moment, but looking back, the trajectory was quite smooth. And I couldn't see that looking forward, but by making the choices in the moment to set us on that trajectory, we were able to find that path. And it ended up being this great bonding moment where our whole team came together for a really exciting project. And it was a synchronistic opportunity which came about in order to, well, I would say in order to help us achieve that goal of cohesion. And that was really useful. But it required getting out of the way and being able to recognize the choices that I had been making that were creating undesirable consequences, like to be attached to how I thought things needed to be and to be very strict about my definition of what we could do as as a team. It sounds like it was an opening up to trusting a broader perspective of how the process could unfold. hmm Yeah. And really open up to trusting the process, trusting like the innate intelligence of, of all that is. Yeah, and it brings us right back to that model that I started with where we're making choices, and those choices are based not on you know, blind trust. They're based on intention and planning and action. But once we've done that and we continue to do that, you know, we continue to make choices and we continue to take action, but we're also on a trajectory towards an outcome that we've targeted. Nature will fill in the gaps. The process of walking that path will bring about situations that weren't predestined and wouldn't have happened if we hadn't have walked that path. And yet suddenly the person shows up in my office to offer this new possibility of a new client. Or suddenly the right job comes along on your job search, and it wouldn't have come along if you hadn't have done the work to set yourself on that trajectory to find a new job or to leave your old job, whatever it may be. So there is very much about process here. And, you know, I, I use the word momentum as a metaphor to describe how as we move along this tree, you know, the tree is populated by apples in some places, and those apples represent the experiences that we are seeking to have, that we're anticipating. But how do we get to those experiences? Well, the apples weigh down the branches of the tree, so we're more likely to head in that direction. And over time, statistically speaking, we'll be closer and closer to more apples. doesn't mean that we've gotten to the apples, but we've built sort of a momentum towards a particular type of experience. And so we can think of the choices we're making as building momentum towards a certain outcome. And we don't actually know how that is going to get fulfilled. But with enough investment and trust in the process and continuing to invest in the process, even when we get discouraged, we build a momentum so that it's likely that something will fall in our lap, some idea or some connection. And that's where being attentive, getting our ego out of the way so we're not prejudging things and we're open-minded, allows us to listen to life and see where, you know, I've done all this work to prepare for this thing I want, Where's the opportunity coming from? And seeing that when it emerges. 
And another way of looking at that scenario is, is like looking up at this branch that has all these juicy apples that we really want and initially not seeing any way to get up there. And yes. so use the term momentum in this way of looking at it. It could be right now I don't see a way of getting there, but I'm not going to give up. Right. I'm going to allow this desire, this this intention to percolate and allow you know the solution or or the answers to come naturally and initially that can be really hard but once you've engaged in that process and you've had success with it it becomes easier and easier to actually trust that process absolutely and this is really one of the key takeaways that i'd like to get across if we live in a holographic world of sorts in which we're presented with situations which align with you know, our growth edge, for instance, or what's beneficial in some way for our learning and up-leveling, then the question we need to ask is not how do I you know, make this amount of money or how do I pass this class or how do I solve climate change. The question we need to ask is how do I do what I need to do to up-level to my next amazing A-game? <laughs> That's a strange way to put it, but how do I how do I learn what I need to learn in order to up-level my own life, my own skills, to get to my next level of challenge? So rather than trying to win or lose or solve particular problems, recognizing that our job is really to increase our capacity, whether or not we pass that class or whether or not we solve that particular issue with climate change. We may not have the solutions available to us right now, but if we see our actions in a larger context, it asks us to ask ourselves about what it is that we need to do in our life to up-level our skills. And from there, I think we find that, you know, we start having better conversations. We start having the right conversations with the people in our lives. We start being available to solutions that we wouldn't have seen before. And the corollary to this is that if we're not able to solve a problem right now, if we're frustrated by something, in this model, it's actually part of the process. You know, we're, we're where we need to be in order to understand the problem a little deeper. And so if we can figure out what it is about the problem that's unsolvable, for us right now and, and change ourselves and learn about ourselves and what we're doing to perpetuate the problem, then we're able to actually shift more than if we sit here, try and point out everyone else's flaws and try and fix the external problem. So I think we put ourselves on a path and then we trust that, you know, I might have the goal of, for instance, in this really big picture, solving climate change, but I don't know how to get there. I don't know what that looks like. I trust that by making choices which have that target, that nature will fill in the gaps of that path and allow me to follow those steps and actually do something meaningful and find a path that's meaningful for me to contribute to the solving of that problem. And it might take longer than I think. It might look really different than I think. And that's where the trust comes in into the process. So the humble approach to the journey is acknowledging the importance and value of each step along the way, no matter how small it might be in relation yeah. to the overall thing. Yeah, because each of those steps is part of the choosing of the whole timeline. So we're constantly making choices about, you know, even in, on a given morning, how do we spend our time? What are we investing our time in? And every minute of being in this cosmos makes a difference. Like nature doesn't sleep. <laughs> right. It reminded me so, of jumping into hyperspace, you know, in the, these modern science fiction movies where you have to really calculate the path that you're taking mm. through hyperspace. Right. Because <laughs> you, you skip the intermediate right, area. Right. Yeah, you're choosing a target and somehow you're, you're not even present for that 
travel, you just end up at the target in, in the hyperspace situation, you know. Right, and a lot of the wisest people keep telling us that it's not the destination that, and that there is no real destination, that the real destination is being where you are along the way. Yeah. I think there's a great parable, or maybe it's a roomy poem, about a person who goes to a palace of a king and has to wait to see the king for a few hours. So they're given the task of walking around the palace and looking at the tapestries the beautiful tapestries from around the world. But at the same time, they have to hold a little spoonful of some kind of oil without spilling it. And so the first time they walk around, they look at the tapestries and they're amazed by them. And they look down and when they get back to the secretary and he says, where's your oil? You spilled the oil. And he says, oh yeah, I was looking at the tapestries. I didn't pay attention to what I was doing with the oil in the spoon. And then he says, you have another few hours. You need to go back and look at the tapestries again. And here's some more oil in your spoon. And this time the man walks around and focuses on the spoon the whole time and doesn't spill it, but he doesn't see any of the tapestries. And he gets back and is told, well, what did you see this time? He says, well, I don't know because I was paying attention to the oil. And so there's a way in which it's being able to do both. That's really what flow is about, I think. And Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, the author who wrote the book Flow, The Psychology of Optimal Experience, defines one way of defining flow is transcending the worry about being in control. So it's not about letting go of control. It's not about taking more control. And it's not about some middle space. It's about actually rising above that dialogue and being free, being in relationship with life, tackling things without knowing where it's leading and without being able to predict what the response is going to be. And when we do that, I think my experience of that is it drops me into a deeper place of intimacy in every relationship that I have. And it makes me more present because I don't know how things are going to go. I don't know how somebody's going to respond to something I choose. I don't know what the right action is in any given moment or what the right thing to say. And I have to show up with vulnerability and openness and a willingness to have boundaries and be a whole human being. I can't just pre-program all that. And that, to me, that's what flow is really about, the authenticity that comes from that experience. What popped up for me was a kind of a contradiction between an earlier statement of yours that there's no present moment, and flow is about being in the present moment, but as you say, in an engaged way, holistically, with, with all that's around us. How are those distinct? Yeah, there's a paradox that arises when we think about, well, there's no present moment, because really all there is are these timelines. We're part of an extended timeline from here to there, and yet the process of experience itself of being an alive, conscious being, seems to be that we take a, a particular perspective on the world. We are in a particular time, in a particular place, and the key is that that is relative to us. We, like me, my consciousness, is right here, right now, experiencing this, and that's why it's so convincing that that's the reality, but there's a very real and important way in which that itself is kind of an illusion, that I'm actually part of an extended history extended timeline that I can only experience in the way I am right now in this moment, because in this moment, I have to satisfy the laws of physics. I have to have energy conservation and matter conservation. There can only be a certain amount of stuff, and it has to be continuous over time. And all those things, the physics defines, you know, how we live in a finite present moment, or we experience a finite present moment. But that is not the ultimate greater nature of things. Really, we're on a, or, or at a different way of looking at it, we're on a timeline of possibilities. And the dance between being present to the moment and also being open and aware of the greater context in which we're unfolding over time 
that's a dance that can't be resolved. We just have to live it. And it seems as though this trajectory connects us both through the past and into the future in ways that we can grasp in our usual ways from our current momentary perspective. And yet, it seems to be part of this sense of, of our holistic relationship with all that is. Yes, and the journey from the past to the future, I like the word holistic, I think you said, right? Yeah. That is the nature of the hologram, is it's got this, and this, this is not very well elucidated in scientific literature, you know, this idea of holism, and the hologram is a phenomenon where there's a holistic nature to something. And what I mean by that is the, you know, a regular photograph, you look at a photograph portrait of your face, it's got the forehead on the top and the chin at the bottom. And if you cut it across the middle, you'd have the forehead on the top and the chin on the bottom piece. Mm -hmm. Like you'd separate the pieces. And that's how we think of the physical world. A hologram is different. The forehead doesn't correspond to a particular place on the film. When you move the film, the image of your forehead moves across the film in a way that makes it look 3D. So that, you know, part of your body moves relative to the other part of your body and it looks like you're rotating. And that's happening because the image itself is not actually affixed to the film. It's an interference pattern which gives rise to the image, but is not actually distributed in a particular way on the film itself. So we have to let go of this notion of a one-to-one bitmap or pixel world. And the hologram is this beautiful illustration of how there's an all-to-one relationship. Like every point on the image of your face in a hologram is going to be related to the entire picture of the entire interference pattern on this film and how it interacts with itself. And the self-interaction of the entire film gives rise to the entire image of the face rather than a particular point of a photograph giving rise to a particular point on the face. And that's the essence of holism. You get a description of something from the entirety of it and a description that doesn't actually pertain to the individual parts separate from each other but there's a way in which wholeness emerges that isn't attributed to each of the individual parts. And this is something I'm working on right now, a new project that goes into wholeness as a path of life. I won't get too deep into it now, but it's something I'm very excited about that I think is really meaningful for us at this time in history. Mm -hmm. And I would say the logical next step is to include time into that holistic perspective. Right. So the, the timeline has the beginning and the end point. It's like the choice I'm making now and the target that I'm aiming towards, the experience I'm seeking to have in the future. Those are part of a whole timeline that includes all of the times in between and all of the experiences that could happen along the way. Yes. And there's a, there's a way in which you can't just divide that up into the present moment and the next present moment and the next present moment. You know, what we do in physics right now is something I'm, I'm trying to work on, you know, a new way of looking at this, which is holistic. But the way we do it right now is we slice everything up into time slices. We take this, you know, big picture and we say, but the world evolves as moments in time that are like pieces of paper in a stack of papers, and you can separate them. And I think that's the wrong metaphor. I don't think you can just slice this moment from that moment from that moment. They're interconnected in ways that we don't really understand. Right. It's like taking a living creature and doing vivisection of it. Right. (laughs) Yeah, and wondering why you keep ending up with a dead corpse. (laughs) Yeah, and thinking you understand everything about the thing from the corpse itself and and missing the qualities that come with it being a living creature. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and it comes from a worldview that we've had for a long time and it seems very reasonable, and science is uh, a beautiful outcome of that worldview, of dividing things apart to understand them. Analysis 
and we're at a time when we can take that analysis and not lose it and not go back to wishful thinking or magical thinking, but actually begin to synthesize the human experience with the scientific worldview so that we have more, uh, just whatever is the next level of deeper understanding that we need to get to as scientists. So again, this work that you're doing most recently is to apply it in our individual subjective lives. Yeah, I, I think that we can separate in some sense the scientific work, which is always being revised and ongoing and uncertain and, and changing. And then you know, I think it's important to apply science to our experience in ways that are useful. And that can't always wait for us to be totally certain about you know, what's true scientifically. I mean, we need to be confident in what we're doing and try and, and be careful with it. But I do try and apply the knowledge that I've gained over time to my life. And really, the question that led me to all this work is, why do certain experiences happen at certain times in life? Is there a, a reason and is there a logic to the order of life, of life experiences? And so my answer to that has to do with the way synchronicity shows up in our lives to help us heal and grow and peel back the layers of conditioning that we've built on ourselves so that we can have more fulfilling relationships, so that we can have experiences where we don't continue to undermine ourselves because of behaviors that we're doing, and seeing ourselves on a path to beautiful things that are not necessarily the specific goals that we have in mind, but a greater sense of wholeness of who we want to be in the world, and seeing ourselves on that path without having our patterns of conditioning get in the way of that. So in the course I launched in December called the Living in Flow course, there's a lot of tools to help understand and identify the feelings that are blocking us from being in flow, the things that allow us to get into living more from our heart, and understanding what that means to live from our heart. What it means is to experience a sensation in our chest, which is authentic, not you know being loving, but what is it that I'm actually experiencing right now, and how can I be honest about that so that I get through it and allow something else to come. And so often I find that I'm compelled to act in certain ways based on feelings that I don't want to have. Like I'm afraid of a conversation going badly. So from that fear, I'm compelled to say something and try and fix the situation. And somehow that creates a bigger problem for myself. Well, instead, I can, what I call living from the heart is being able to feel my fear that things will go wrong being able to feel the, the grief associated with the relationship that's not quite working so that I'm not compelled to act upon it and then seeing what else comes and how can I respond to this person that I'm with in a way that's actually constructive and sees them for who they are and gets us gradually out of whatever knot of miscommunication we're in in order to see each other one-on-one -on -one as we are authentically. And this unwinding happens moment by moment, synchronistically, as we get opportunities synchronistically and in life, to heal our relationships one by one. And sometimes the most effective thing we can do is to actually sit still and be silent and be receptive. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, in the process I talked about, the Lorax, listen, open, reflect, release, act, and then repeat the process, the first four things are non-actions. They're receptivity listening to life experiences. This can happen when you're sitting on a meditation cushion and you're not listening to the sounds around you. You're, you're reflecting over the past day, over the past week, over the past month or year. You're reflecting on what are the significant things that have happened that I haven't quite paid attention to. Or reflecting on what's arising in this moment, like what knee-jerk reaction is arising inside of me to what's happening. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so these are non-action-oriented things that allow us to get clear on how we want to respond to our world. And then once we've done that, then the response becomes natural. And we respond in what I would call in alignment with the circumstances. And that's the most likely to get us into flow. Mm -hmm. Getting to a place where we can ask a better question, a clearer question. Right. And to see, you know, get a question that really accurately reflects what's going on in our world. You know, the tools I try and provide in the course help us see our own layers of interpretation and what's underneath that to see what's, you know, what is this other person we're with really feeling? Why are they acting in the way that they're acting that's bringing the situation to me? And how can I get my own filters and reactions out of the way so that I can see what they're really experiencing? And then the response that I might come with feels actually pretty natural once I see what's really happening in the situation. So formulating that right question, like you were saying. And what a novel question to ask what is going on for them while I'm also working on what's going on for me. Yeah. I think that takes a lot of maturity to be able to hold ambiguity. You know, the two people that myself and this other person can be having different experiences, and we're not trying to win. It comes back to this idea that we're not trying to win or lose. We're trying to figure out how do I get to my next level of well-being, of skill, and of capacity? How do I up-level myself to be able to negotiate problems and difficulties that are even more complex than I have in the past? And even if we're not in conflict with them, to also allow the space for their experience to be different from ours which can be so difficult for many of us because we naturally assume by the act of filling in all the the empty blank spaces with what we know, we assume that everybody else is experiencing what we experience. And that's what seems to make it so easy for us to blame other people for what we see as their shortcomings or what they didn't do right or what they should have known or what they should have done. Yeah, you know, I like to think of the process of synchronicity being like a mirror. The world is reflecting to us our own choices and our own inner landscape. So it doesn't mean that we're responsible for what other people do, but everything that happens to us triggers a response in us, and that's the reflection. Mm. So when somebody does something that's rude in a meeting, let's say, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, maybe, but my reaction to it tells me a lot about myself. So synchronicities are showing up in life, I think, in order to help us keep triggering ourselves in ways that help us clear out some of that luggage or some of that interpretations that we're doing so that we can get down to the nitty-gritty of what's really happening. And when we're at that level, when we see things without our own filters, we're able to relate to people in a way that I think heals those relationships rather than perpetuates more pain. And ultimately, I don't see us really trying to fix the world. I see us just changing our trajectory from where our interactions cause more and more pain and discord to a different momentum or a different trajectory where every interaction we have heals something a little bit more and connects us a little bit more. Instead of making us farther apart, every day we get closer together. Yeah, so again, it seems as though the meaning of synchronicity is reconnecting. I think so, yeah. The topic I'm really working with right now is the sense of isolation that we feel in the world right now. We're more connected than ever with the internet and the global nature of things. And we're not always sure or or have the skills to actually feel connected. And I think feeling connected has to do with how we show up and how we share with people 
whether we are living and expressing our courageous, you know, what it is it's hard to express, an authentic feeling we have. Like when we get angry at someone and we're afraid to share that, how do we do that? Or when we feel joy and that's hard to share for some reason, how do we feel that? And so I think that we are trying to become more whole and in becoming more whole, it's also about connecting with people and learning how to become less isolated in our lives and work together as a collective. And I think that there's a lot of conversations we're not able to have at a collective level. You just look at the way we make policy decisions. It's really this old model of one person yelling at another person and trying to upstage them. And we don't have people that are really skilled at mutual understanding. I mean, we do have people. I I don't want to generalize. The general system isn't based on mutual understanding. It's based on winning and losing. And I think that's something that can shift as we grow more able and more skilled at working with flow in our lives and understanding our own inner motivations for the things we do, what's compelling us to act, and how do we allow in grief, allow in disappointment, allow in anger in ways that are transformative rather than reactive. It would be so amazing to bring the Lorax process into our political system. Yeah, you know, if I could just identify what the hang-up is, I think it's around openness. I think we're trained to have a particular perspective and we're trained to, you know, even just constituencies. A constituency in one district in your state is going to have a different set of needs from a constituency in one district in my state. And even within states, the constituencies are different. And the job of the representative is to advocate for their constituency at the expense of anything, you know, really. Like, Mm -hmm. that's not their job to advocate for anybody else. And that's not the way my relationships works, you know, like with my, in my family and in my relationships. And it's not the, the way that I've learned is successful to be a human being in relationship. There's a, a mutuality and an ambiguity and a willingness to tolerate that and trust that needs to make its way into any kind of real collective dialogue that we have. And it's certainly not working in Washington either. Right. I'm talking with Sky Nelson Isaacs. He's a physics educator musician, and the author of Living in Flow, The Science of Synchronicity and How Your Choices Shape Your World. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. After a while, you would think that people would recognize that doing the same old thing and actually doubling down on the same old thing isn't working and consider moving in a different well, direction. I have some compassion for that because I, I, I agree with you 100%. The challenge that I see in my life personally is that I've spent many, many years doubling down on the same behaviors. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, I, I learned how to defend myself by being you know, overly smart or focused on my own activities and you know, trying to impress people when I was younger. And that was my way of trying to fit in, right? mm-hmm. trying to impress people. Mm-hmm. And then as I became an adult, like that didn't really work. Sometimes it worked, but most of the time it didn't. But I kept doing that and finding ways to mature that worldview, but have it really be just dressed up a different way. It's still the same need to accomplish things in order to really feel like I'm connected to people. And I just keep doubling down on that in the same way that we as a a government and as a people keep doubling down on this idea that if we're just more and more belligerent and more and more clear in what we need, that somehow other people will back down and give us what we need because somehow we're right and they're not and they just have to see that. You know, our values are right, are, are more right than theirs, and we keep doubling down on that. And so I have compassion for that because I've done that as a person too. And it's only through a process of flow and healing and paying attention to the experiences of my life in a new way that I've been able to 
shift out of the patterns that I've created for myself. And I think it takes work. It takes effort and dealing with pain and suffering in a new way or being willing to go through that. And I think that's what we have to do collectively, too. So being able to set the right conversations in motion is essential to being able to begin to make different choices. And if we don't have a different conversation, we're not going to be able to make different choices. We're going to keep doubling down on the same thing. Right. And that's what we see in climate change right now, right? We just we want something different or we think we want something different, but we're not actually having the conversations we need to in order to be different. Don't get me wrong. Many people are doing very important work. There are a lot of great conversations happening. And climate change is tied into racism and bigotry and income inequality and all sorts of problems that are all intertwined. And that's why I don't really advocate climate change as the only important issue. I actually advocate this process of understanding ourselves and a new worldview for how we problem solve and living in flow and becoming whole people as even underlying these big outer issues. And so when we start working with that proactively, we can begin to have the conversations we need to to solve the external problems more readily. And, I, you know, I'm really, really hopeful because I see that it's possible for us to shift really fast. We just have to understand how human shift works. You know, I, I think about something like Facebook and how when Facebook came out, you know, if you think it's hard to change people's behaviors quickly, just think about the way Facebook changed the way we all, or, you know, whatever social media is your favorite, the way it changed the way that we interact with our technology. Within a short period of time, a few years, people were doing things differently. They were spending time and doing things differently. And a lot of what I teach in my course is how to make different choices. And it's really hard because we've got this momentum and we have our, our daily habits in our lives. The way that we do things is very fixed for the most part. And yet when you find the right motivation for the right change at the right time, it's very easy to change, just like it was very fun and easy to take on social media and start engaging in that way, and it caught fire. It's also when we identify what is the real need that we have right now as a collective to connect, to feel like we're part of something bigger than ourselves, to feel like we understand our place in the cosmos and we don't feel small and insignificant, but we also don't feel like we're the most important thing. Like We, we have a sense of belonging and awe and wonder when we identify what it is that we, we really are seeking and wanting and yearning for, then we can make quick change. But it's not our vision to just deal with climate change. That's what we want because we're afraid of climate change. Our vision is actually to, I think, have a better experience as a human being and to feel safe, to feel connected to people, to feel like our world makes sense and like we're excited about our day. And those are the things we should be aiming for in dealing with climate change and dealing with race inequality and dealing with income inequality are all things that will come out of that different orientation that we have to our own life. So have you come up with any connections between the way Facebook and other social media technologies have precipitated such rapid change and response in so many people and how that could be applied to what you're talking about right now? Well, you know, I think social media tapped into what was obviously a need that people have, which is to feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves. And that's what happened when we went to the moon. That's what happens when we have a project that's collective that brings us together. It also happens at times of crisis. And, you know, we can have things like 9-11 happen and everyone comes together or an earthquake happens and everyone comes together. And, you know, I think part of the choice here is do we proactively, from a place of openness and vision and excitement 
and awe and wonder try to create the things that bring us together and or bring us together is kind of the goal. Do we create the things that give us the things that we are really wanting for our lives? Or do we wait and just kind of buckle down and do our daily tasks and go to work and come home and go to sleep and wait around until something negative comes up? And the reason we latch onto the negative things is because they bring us together. They make us feel like we're part of something bigger. It happens to be part of something negative and frustrating and scary, but it serves a, a need that we have, I think. I mean, I'm not sure, but it's one way to look at it. And so how can we, instead of waiting for that, be more proactive about what's the vision we have for what we want to create, identify what it is that people are wanting. It's very clear that people don't want to be in a place of polarization. So how do you identify what is the thing that people are actually wanting? You know, one of the things that I think about a lot that social media touches on is when you talk about issues in a certain way related to politics, you immediately get people, even in the, even the same family, arguing with each other and not able to have any kind of compassion or perspective. But those same people will play a game of croquet together or baseball or have a barbecue or spend time with grandchildren and have a delightful time together. There's all sorts of things we do that connect us as human beings. And it's only when we bring up certain issues that trigger us, that those triggers come from our own psychology and our own emotional responsiveness or reactiveness, that we then start to argue and be polarized. So the more that we can become emotionally capable of navigating our own inner experience and in some sense, controlling it, not tamping it down, but being able to be a master of our emotions and of our psychology, the more we can get into the parts of connected relationship that really feel good to us and build rather than tear down. Yeah, it always seems to boil down to that. The only thing we can really control or attempt to control are the way we respond to things. Right. But that's also the most difficult <laughs> thing to do. Yeah. yeah, it is. And that's really the essence of what I think living in a synchronistic world teaches us, that our choices are the linchpin, like you said, the access point between the present and the future. And we can see that more clearly and take responsibility in ways that we may not be taking responsibility for that and ultimately gain more power over the direction of the way our life unfolds, both individually and collectively. So it seems like the most powerful tool that I can put my finger on is using that Lorax process with everything that arises or that we encounter, particularly the challenging things, the things that trigger us. Yeah, so that's how you identify things that are triggering you. There's another activity that I can walk through real fast, which just illustrates the power of using synchronistic moments, obstacles to grow and heal. So if you ever find yourself worrying about something habitually that doesn't actually come true, and you find yourself, oh, I just spent all day worrying about whether this thing would work out, and then it ended up working out, but I kind of lost the day. We can not just move on. We can actually take a moment to look at that situation and reprogram the way we feel and have a different experience next time. So for instance, I drove a long way to get to my class one time when I was in graduate school. I, you know, it was like a two-hour drive. I only had an hour and a half class, so I get there, and I, I'm almost going to be late for class, and I barely find a parking place, and I get out of the car, and I'm going about to walk to class, and I realize the parking place has a sign that says no parking. And it didn't seem like I was really in an emergency zone, so I didn't have like a moral issue with it, but I had this issue of like, do I go to class and risk getting a ticket, or do I move my car and probably be like 
half an hour late for class because it's not easy to park and miss like this whole experience I really want to have. And I decided to go to class and leave my car where I was, which brought up this whole feeling for the next two hours of anxiety. Like I might be getting a ticket right now and I just want to jump out of my seat and go back to my car and, and move my car. But how do we, instead of feeling that anxiety and fear and worry, how do we manage those feelings, decide how we really want to behave in order to get the most from the situation, and reprogram ourselves to have that kind of discipline? So when I finished the class and I went back to my car and I looked to see if I had a ticket, I didn't. And so instead of just getting in my car and being happy and driving away, I took a moment to think about what it felt like to be worried and I invite your listeners to think about something in your life that you worry about a lot, but sometime that it actually worked out. And the next time it works out for yourself, take a moment to let in the feeling of anxiety, let in the feeling of worry, really feel it. And then let in the fact that it worked out fine in your favor. There's always things that happen in our lives that we worry about that actually just work out fine. So let it in and have associate a new feeling. You're starting with a feeling of anxiety and worry around getting a parking ticket and then you let in this new fact that the ticket wasn't actually there. There was never actually any reality to that ticket happening. It was something that I made up in my mind. And then I start to have a different experience with that. The next time I'm in a situation where I am worried about getting a ticket, I have a little bit more control over my feelings because I can bring in this memory of a feeling. And I, I think our feelings are where our memories lie, right? So we bring in the memory of a feeling where I actually didn't get a ticket. And I can take a deep breath and have control over what I decide to do in that moment. And I might still decide to move my car the next time, or I might not, but I have more control. I'm not compelled to act out of fear anymore. Mm -hmm. You wanted to share tips with our listeners. I'm wondering if you have any others that you would like to share before we go. I think the real skill that has helped me the most, and I find from people that I talk to, has to do with allowing in our authentic experience. When we block whatever it is that we're experiencing, because we don't want to feel it, it stops us from being able to get into flow and relate to people and relate to our experiences in a proactive way. So I think that's very powerful, identifying what it is that you're reacting to and finding tools like the ones that I've provided today that allow you to open that up a little bit and make different choices. I want to also share the different mindset that comes from not just thinking about ourselves in the moment trying to make something happen, but thinking of ourselves as part of a timeline that we're choosing. I invite you to think about what's needed for your next level, not what's the right thing to do or how are you going to solve the problems in front of you, but how are you going to get to the next level of your experience, of your skill. Think of life as an online video game that you're playing where you have a quest. You're part of a quest to up-level your skills. And rather than being attached to winning or losing in the particular situation you're in, be interested in up-leveling yourself, seeing that as the goal. And how does synchronicity show up to allow you to do that? So how does synchronicity help with that? Where does that fit in? Well, once we make a decision of where we're trying to get to, what's the real goal? We're making choices which set a target in the future. We don't even realize we're setting a target. But when I choose to start looking for a job, I'm setting a target where I have the experience of getting a job. That doesn't mean I'm going to get there, but that's the natural outcome of the actions I'm taking. So I have an intention, I plan around it, I take action, and then the apples on the tree that correspond to that experience weigh down those branches and make it more likely that anything that leads to that experience happens. 
So I've got an elevated chance now of experiencing out-of-the-blue help from a professor or from a family member or from a situation like an obstacle. Maybe an appointment gets canceled spontaneously, and that allows me unexpectedly to end up in a different place than I would have and solve a problem. Seeing the synchronicities are any of those moments that show up which are unexpected, but they actually lead us to experiences we've already set out for ourselves to have. So every step that we take towards something that we're wanting or any objective increases the likelihood or probability of getting there. I think so. And the key, though, is this very subtle, I think. We need to I try and be scientific about it. The key is this idea of anticipated qualitative experience. Our everyday life is about experiences that we're having. I'm not setting a target of, you know, making a certain amount of money in Q3. I'm setting a target of the experience I want to have of fulfillment when I reach that goal. Mm-hmm. The experience I have of up-leveling my skill as a business person. Not being successful, but up-leveling my skill. This wholesome sense of what it means to be alive and be a human being and be more fulfilled with life. That's what's really driving I think this mechanism that I call meaningful history selection, that's what's making it so it's more likely that we have a history unfold, which brings us a synchronicity to help us live a fuller and richer life. So you're talking about the underlying qualitative aspect rather than the quantitative. Yeah. And in philosophy, there's a lot of research into this idea of qualia. I'm not an expert in, as a philosopher, but that's what I think is the same idea that I'm trying to convey from a physics perspective, that ultimately experience is the fundamental reality. Everything we know to be true comes out of our experience of it. The physical world is a place that we are experiencing. And our description of the physical world, even in quantum mechanics, is dependent on the interactions we have with it, which are essentially experiences. So I see experience as the fundamental reality And therefore, the experiences that we anticipate having become more likely, we're identifying, you know, in in this sort of timeless holographic representation, we're identifying, again, this is controversial stuff, I'm not trying to whitewash it there, but we're identifying future experiences based on current experiences, and the circumstances that give us those experiences are more likely to happen just because they naturally answer the question that we're asking, the way you put it. So for me, what I've been learning is that it's the qualitative experience that I achieve as a result of the outer objective. Like I may think that I want more money or I want some object, but it's the feeling that I get when I achieve that that's most deeply meaningful to me and that's what actually magnetizes that experience for me. It's not the object itself because usually when we achieve an object, we very quickly become bored with it. But it's the feeling that we're anticipating right. from it. And I'm not remembering the term, but there was some anticip- anticipated qualitative experience. Yes. Yes. So yeah. <laughs> it sounds like that's what that's about. Yeah. And it relates to our subjective experience of meaning. Yeah, so I think of meaning as what are the natural consequences of the choices I'm making? That's one way of looking at meaning. So if I spend time refining my resume and making it more current, that has a natural consequence of having something to send when a job opportunity emerges. And feeling good about that. And feeling good about it. And so that's a very non-subjective way to think about meaning. Like, what does the action I'm taking lead to? Even if I don't know 
exactly how it's going to unfold, it's very reasonable to expect that when I revise my resume and make it look good, I'll feel good about when an opportunity comes to apply for a job, I'll be ready for it. So a lot of this is about making ourselves ready. And the word anticipation, anticipated qualitative experience, is really trying to get at this idea of intention. Like, I'm intending a certain outcome. But a lot of times our intentions are subconscious. So Mm -hmm. we don't know what our intention is. And we like to think we do. So how come the world isn't unfolding the way I wanted to? Because I intended to you know, be helpful with my friend when I offer them advice, but I wasn't. They got really mad at me. <laughs> so instead, I might ask myself, what's the anticipated qualitative experience? What am I anticipating? And when I give advice to a friend, maybe I'm anticipating them not being unhappy anymore. Or maybe I'm anticipating them looking at me as wiser than them. Or maybe I'm anticipating them feeling like they can count on me. But the outcome of that is very different than the outcome of, like, I intend to be helpful. And I think anticipation, when we anticipate certain experiences, it's more rigorous. It's more clear. Like, we're constantly anticipating things in our life. And sometimes it's good stuff and sometimes it's bad. You know, we don't have perfect mental control to somehow always be, you know, thinking about how we're going to positively influence the world. We have insecurities that catch up with us and make us anticipate negative situations, too. And I think that that impacts the types of synchronicities that come our way. So if we can ask the question, what would be the result of this desire or the outcome that I'm looking for? What is the underlying outcome? Yeah. What's the underlying experience that I'm seeking to create here? And that question can allow the wisdom to recognize that maybe the thing I was going to say isn't going to get me there. Like, it feels good to act, to say something, you know, about how the other person was wrong. But if I think about the experience I'm anticipating, which is to be more connected to them or to resolve the issue, gradually through experience, I will probably learn that proving that I'm right doesn't actually get there. It creates more of a back and forth. And through the process I was describing around healing, we'll keep being given the opportunity to prove we're right until we learn that that doesn't actually resolve the issue. Or maybe for someone else, it's being willing to stand up for what you think is right. Because over and over again, you find yourself undermining your own authority, and you keep being given experiences to do that until you learn how to stand up for what you believe in. So it's, it's really different for everybody, and it's, it's about the process. It's not about being a certain type of person, but about being able to dive into the flow process, which is helping us grow and evolve and heal. And you know some of the questions that I think this work can be helpful with that I provide tools for in, in the course, the Living and Flow course, have to do with how we strike work-life balance, how we deal with when we're bored with our challenges at work and want opportunities for more relevant opportunities for growth. You know, being able to bring our whole selves to the picture. It's nice to think that when we're at work, we're having experiences that make us grow at work, and when we're at home, we have experiences that make us grow at home. But actually we're going to be given experiences of growth all the time in all areas of our life. So when we set a target at work, you know, to maybe deal with something difficult with a colleague, we might find that we're out to the movies with our family later that week, and the movie topic is really about the same thing that we're dealing with in our work life. And we realize there's a connection, and we say, oh, I see how I could deal with this differently. So by seeing the opportunities in the world out there to gain information about our own personal challenges, we can become more effective. And and I think really one of the benefits of this process of using synchronicity as a growing tool is to more quickly move through the challenges that we face. 
because we're really absorbing information from a lot of different sources that may be relevant to us. And ultimately, let me just make sure to say that it's the inside knowing, the inside self that decides what's relevant and what's not. We're not actually relying on the world to tell us synchronistically, you know, what we should do or who we should be. It's just reminding us and reflecting to us our own reactions so that we can decide who do I want to become in this moment. So how can people find out more about your work and your new video course? You can find the course at the website www.theletterUthrivehere.com slash livingandflow. And you can find it also just through my website, skynelson.com. And it's an evergreen content, so it's just there, and you, know, you can take it whatever pace you want. But we do have a regular meetup online just for anyone who wants to come to the office hours that happens once a month or so. And so there's a chance to connect with a community of people that are all looking at ways that synchronicity and flow can change the way that you deal with obstacles and the way that you look at the big picture of your life and the way that you make choices and see the possibilities available to you. I really appreciate that you're bringing a scientific, a more rigorous scientific eye to this kind of mushy topic. Yeah, I try to. And I, I think it's important that hopefully influences people to be more satisfied and fulfilled and help us, I think, rise to a new level of problem solving in our culture. You know, and it's not about external problem solving. It's about choices that we make. I think our choices are sacred. We get to choose in our life. And no one can take that choice away from us, even if we're constrained by circumstances. We always have the ability to choose what inner direction we want to go with ourselves. And so when we think about up-leveling our skills, getting to our next greatest level of achievement or of well-being, that actually has an impact on our world around us. The more of us up-level ourselves in that way, the more we'll make different decisions culturally, which start to resolve and bring about opportunities to resolve the bigger questions that we face. So I really, I'm just asking each of us and myself to make every choice really count. And really, flow is this state in which we can focus on what we know to be true for ourselves and engaging with life wholeheartedly. And when we do that, when we really engage with life wholeheartedly and let go of the constraints of what we think our parents are going to think of us or our boss, when we really engage wholeheartedly, we begin to experience a much greater set of circumstances. Synchronicities show up in our life to help us with that, and the collective problems start to resolve. We start to see, you know, when I act in alignment with my own authentic wisdom, I also make choices that benefit other people rather than taking care of their needs and actually undermining their needs in some way. So when we start to act in flow and live in flow individually, we also start to build collective systems that work for each other. And I think that's the way to magically change the world is to focus on how can I really dive into my life wholeheartedly and trust that together that will uplift us all as a collective. And where we are connected, you know, everything we do heals something, you know, it builds bonds. And you might not realize how much the, the positive connections that you have with people influence their experience and heal them in a way. I think of every interaction we have as either wounding or healing in some way or constructing or destructing. And if we just make most of our choices building bridges rather than tearing them down, we'll really shift the momentum of our collective experience. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we avoid going for what we want, going for the good feeling because we think it's selfish or we have a you know, desire not to impose on other people. And you know, these are all just patterns that we've picked up 
through our upbringing. And the more we can get clear on what our patterns are and start to have some freedom from them, the more we can relate to people in a way that just feels good. And even sometimes it doesn't feel good because we have to confront something that's difficult. But that is part of the flow of authenticity that it's not like we're trying to go for, you know, always feeling good. Even feeling our grief can be a release that feels fulfilling. And being willing to suffer through that is what can get us into flow again when we're out of flow. Mm -hmm. So again, my guest has been Sky Nelson Isaacs. He's a physics educator, musician, and he's the author of Living in Flow, The Science of Synchronicity and How Your Choices Shape Your World. And he has a new video series to go along with that. Why don't you give your websites again? The website for the video series is www.theletterUthrivehere.com slash livinginflow. And my website where I can be reached, and you can also find out about the course, is at www.skynelson.com. And we have a webinar that you can check out, which has some information about the course before you register. And I'm also available to answer any questions, or you can find me on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and sign up for my email list from my website. And I do a lot of writing and provide a lot of resources for people that I think are useful to inspire you and give you context and tools to think about your life in this way. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. For me too, Tonio. Thank you. And be well. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week.